Thank you, worship team and worshipers, right? This is the choir. He is the audience. I hope that he has been pleased thus far. I remember when I was a teenager, my family was attending a national uh, Christian conference, one of these big Christian conference things. And uh, I recall being there and in this, what seemed to me to be like a massive auditorium where uh, they had as speakers, the kind of normal lineup types. You had uh, Christian college presidents, there were authors, there were pastors of big churches. And these were the guys uh, that were sort of paraded across the front of the stage. And I remember sitting there and just being somewhat in awe of uh, you know, the whole experience and the people that were up there speaking and the spotlights that seemed so impressive to me. And, um, so anyway, that was the, that was the conference. The, the convention center was connected to a hotel that basically like everybody stayed at this hotel. And so my dad and I were, uh, going to our room and we were in the lobby and we pushed the button to go up the elevator to our room and the doors open And we step into the elevator and we look around and the elevator is filled with these somebodies, these big shots, these speakers and all of that. And my dad, uh, who's never one to miss an opportunity to be profound and attempt humor, looks around the elevator and he says, wow. This elevator might go all the way to heaven. (laughs) Yeah, that's my dad. Now, why did we feel that way? And I think I was kind of feeling the same way. Because here we are in this little enclosed space, breathing the air that came from the lungs of these leaders. We were impressed. Very much impressed. I also recall uh, about 11 years ago when I first came uh, to Bethel, I was asked to speak at this Bible conference. Um, this One of these conferences had been going on for like 80 years, and they actually had a, a surprisingly well-known uh, lineup of speakers at this uh, conference. I was not one of them. <laughs> and they would, I was not there to, to speak to the general assembly. I was the youth speaker. For the week. And let me just say, there is nothing wrong with being the youth speaker. <laughs> and so they relegated the youth to this dumpy little chapel. And that's where I spoke every day while the somebodies, the big deal types, spoke to the adults in the General Assembly. Uh, I was excited about this because. I was a speaker for the week, which meant that I got to go to the speaker's dinner after the general assemblies in the evening. And so there were really notable people that were uh, in the speaker list, two in particular that I wanted to talk to. I remember there was one guy who was a pastor of this giant um, Assembly of God church, you know, TV ministry and all the whiz-bang stuff that went along with his ministry. And then there was another guy that was the pastor of one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the country. And I was thinking I'd really like to talk to those guys. So I recall at the dinner, 
that during the meal, I got up, and I, we were on this long table, and like, it kind of went from famous people to not-so-famous people, and so I was more down on this end, and uh, I remember uh, getting up and going down to the famous people uh, section of the table, and I got to where these two guys were, and they were sort of chatting each other up, and, and I said, I just kind of interrupted, and I said, hey, I said, my name's Steve DeWitt, I'm the youth speaker this week, and I just became the senior pastor at this church outside of Chicago, I wonder if you have any advice for me. And they said, why don't you pull up a chair? And so I pulled up a chair, and they gave me their time, and they gave me attention, and they gave me advice, and they actually acknowledged my existence. I was touched. I really was. I was like, wow. They, they, were real, they were like nice to me and very helpful. I remember some advice that they gave me to this day. But I got the idea after talking with them that while they were somebodies, they didn't look at themselves like they were a big deal. And this is what Paul is bringing us to now is the question of how should God's people view spiritual leaders in their life, and how should spiritual leaders view themselves? Like, who's the big deal? Who's the big shot in the church? And how should we look at it? And you might recall that this has been a problem in the church at Corinth. We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and that this is a problem in the church. It was a big-time problem in uh, the culture, because as we've studied, the Corinthians greatly admired the wise man, and they admired the orator. If you were a philosopher or if you were a, a, one of their professional speakers, you were a celebrity uh, in the culture of the day. And that the Corinthian Christians basically brought that perspective into the church. And they viewed the wise man in the church or the teacher in the church or the leader in the church kind of like the culture viewed those people outside the church. They were making celebrities of these leaders and were actually finding their identity in them. That is why Paul begins the book uh, in chapter 1 by saying that, that, that you're saying, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. They were lining up behind these men. They were putting them on pedestals. They were finding their spiritual identity in a man. And so Paul has been addressing this now. And what, is, what has been going on is that the Corinthians then were making much of who they shouldn't and making little of who they should. I like that sentence a lot. Can I say it again? There's not going to be very many memorable sentences in this message, but this is one of them. They were making much of who they shouldn't, and they were making little of who they should. And this was the big problem. So, uh, we are going to talk about this because God's Word talks about it, and frankly, because in the American church, this is a, a big-time problem. In fact, when has there ever been a church that has made bigger celebrities out of people than the American, the modern American church? I mean, we have our own lineup of, of celebrities, people that we, you know, we would feel honored to breathe their air, for them to acknowledge our existence. So this is a problem, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to read the passage, though, together, and why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word today? We're in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 5. What 
then is Apollos. What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, we're going to stretch a little bit today in the text and uh, go over a a few verses because I want to get to verse 11, which is the core of what he is saying here. And along the way, I'm not going to talk about a few things that he brings up here. And I just want to tell you that right now. So if you notice that and and you're upset about that, get off my case. Lovingly, I say that. uh, Because we're going to pick some of that up in a future message and, and work our way through it. So here's what Paul's going to do. He wants to put Christian leadership in perspective. Like how are we to view these guys? He says in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? These are rhetorical questions. The idea there is, is like, come on, who are, who are we? Because Paul, of course, is one of them. Now, he doesn't say this because uh, the Corinthians didn't know who they were. Clearly, they knew who Apollos and Paul were. Apollos was uh, a very, the New Testament tells us, a very powerful and a very persuasive preacher. Uh, he ministered in Corinth. Uh, he was a, a man of some note. Many people believe that he wrote the book of Hebrews, for example. Uh, we don't know, but he was a key leader in the early church. How about Paul? Fairly well-known guy, don't you think? The Apostle Paul, commissioned by Jesus Christ himself in his vision on the road to Damascus, becomes the Gentile apostle. He writes 13 books of the New Testament. He founds the church at Corinth and many others and would be a pretty well-known guy in the church, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say. If you got in an elevator and Apollos and Paul were there, you'd be like, wow, we're going to heaven. But how are we to view them? What are they really? Are they like big shots? Are they they somebodies in the church? And is Paul wanting us to build monuments to them and build churches to them and name things in their honor? Is that what Paul had in mind? No. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he answers his own question by saying, servants... Through whom you believed. Here's the first thing to recognize about any person that is a leader or a teacher in the church. They are merely servants. Servants. The Greek word there is a familiar one. Diakonos. We get the, uh, the title deacon uh, from that. We have deacons in our church. Servants in the church. So their status then is 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 not one of lifting high. They are, they are here to serve. 
The word was used for menial workers of the day. Menial jobs, dirty jobs, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, not, high on the, uh, not high on the pay scale. It was most often used in Greek literature for somebody who waited on tables. Waited on tables, like a busboy. And when I saw that this week in my studies, my mind went immediately back to my teenage years where I spent many summers working as a busboy in Waterloo, Iowa at Friedman's Cafe. Let me tell you about it. I had a uniform, white shirt, black pants, black bow tie that I had to wear. I thought about getting a picture. I probably have one somewhere and me and my outfit. Uh, it was not like a high-scale place, though. It was more like a family cafe sort of deal. And my job as the busboy, if you're unfamiliar with what a busboy uh, is, is there to do, my job as, as the busboy was that I had, I had a tub and I had a rag. And when people would leave from their table, my job was to go and to clean up their mess which entailed taking the plates and putting them in the tub, uh, cleaning off the napkins and all the other stuff, um, cleaning up the cracker explosion from the child who was in the seat. Ah! (laughs) Nobody thinks about the busboy. Nobody thinks about the busboy. Crackers everywhere, vacuum, clean it up, wipe the seats off. After you wipe the table off, That's something that some people don't realize. You should do the table, then the seats, not the seats, then the table. Try not to think about that as you go to lunch today. Uh, And then I would take the dishes back to the dishwasher in the back of the restaurant, and they would clean the dishes. This was my job as busboy. I spent many, 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 many hours bussing tables. In all of the hours that I spent there as a busboy, you know what I never heard one time? Never. I, had, I never had anybody come to me and say, hey, busboy, you are amazing. <laughs> never happened. In fact, it was like I was invisible or something. I'd go walking around, people were coming to their seats, wouldn't even acknowledge my existence. Oh, it's the busboy. Do your thing and get out of the way. We didn't get tips. We didn't get love. We were necessary, but we were unremarkable. What is Apollos? What is Paul? What is, what is Billy Graham? What is, what is Rick Warren? What is Pastor Steve? What is, what is missionary Alan Fry? Who are these guys in reality? Servants. Busboys. Spiritual busboys. You don't build monuments to busboys. You don't put servants on pedestals. They don't go there. That's higher than they ought to be. They're diakonos. Now, that said, it does not insinuate that Christian leaders don't have a role to play, and, and an important role to play, just like busboys have an important role to play in the whole restaurant experience. 
definitely. What is the role of the, of the Christian leader servant? Servants through whom you believed. You see that? Through whom you believed. So that in the kingdom of God and, and in Christian ministry, s- serving is exalted. I mean, for sure. We have, uh, we have right now going on throughout this entire facility. There is all kinds of service uh, that, is, that is going on. I see, I see some, a, a man walking along the back here, and he's serving. And we could go in the children's area, and there's people serving. And there's teachers right now serving. And there's, there's people I'm serving right now as I speak to you. This is, in the kingdom of God, service is exalted. Christ himself said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So serving does have a vital role. It is a very important role. However... The text says that spiritual leaders are servants through whom you believed, not in whom you believed. And there is a huge difference between those two. It's much like, as you know, I love to go to Florida, especially this time of year. Love to go to Florida, escape the cold. I love to go to the west side of Florida because that is the side that you get the sun sets. Those of you that go to the east side, you are missing out. I would suggest the west side to be much, much better. I love sunsets. You know this. I've talked with you about this before because it's a theological experience as the sun is setting and a beauty begins to just sort of pour forth as it sinks, the globe sinks along the horizon and you have the colors, the mauves and the reds and the purples and the blues and you have the, the sound of the seagulls, and you've got the wind breeze off of the gulf there, and the sound of the waves lapping at your feet, and it's great. But you know, I've, I've never stood there and watched that sun set, and I've never thought to myself, these glasses are awesome. I have never thought that in the in the in the in the in the uh, view of beauty. Never. Now, these glasses are important because trust me, if I didn't have these glasses, the whole beauty thing would not be the experience that it is. But I am seeing the beauty through the glass. I am not seeing the beauty in the glass because there's not necessarily much beauty in the glass or in the glasses, but through the glasses, now I can see another beauty. There's a huge difference between a servant that you uh, come, that, that through whom you believe and a servant in whom you believe. We are not to believe in glasses. We are not to believe in men. We are to, through men and through glasses, see another beauty, namely the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. Now, the reason this is so important is that what happens is we oftentimes have people in our life that bless us in some way. We have a a coach that 
is maybe a Christian and, and influences us. We have a youth pastor that has a huge impact in our life. We have the person that God used to lead us to faith in Christ. We have the person that mentors us or disciples us. We have our Sunday school teacher from sixth grade. We have uh, a pastor in our life. We might have an author uh, that we love to read and we grow from and we learn from. We have some maybe radio or TV person that we watch and we're blessed by. We have all of these people in our life that it is so easy subtly for our faith to be in them and not through them. And to miss the fact that they are tools. That's what they are. Tools that God uses to help us see another beauty. Again, the beauty of Christ. So that I, I would say to you that every pastor and every elder and every deacon and every teacher and every author and every mentor and every coach and every parent and every person that God has used in our life, we must not put them too high. But to see them as somebody through whom God has used for us to believe in the greater beauty, which is Christ. So a, a, a biblical perspective on Christian leadership has to begin by recognizing that they, that the best of men are men at best, that they are, they are merely servants. Now, critical role, but merely servants. Secondly, Paul's going to say now that in the, in the grand scheme of redemption, that these men are insignificant. Look at verse 6 again. He's going to use a little farming illustration. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Okay, I always love it when we get uh, to farming illustrations at a church here in the great state of Indiana, where... All of us probably drove by some field somewhere to get here. If you didn't drive by one, feel free to look at the one across the street because there are fields all over here and they are all little testimonies to what Paul was talking about here. How does farming work? Let's review. Starts with a seed, little seed. Somebody has to put the seed in the ground. Okay? You put the seed in the ground. The next thing that has to happen is that that seed needs the proper conditions to grow. Primarily, it needs, come on Hoosiers, it needs water. That's right. And so farmers put the plant, the little seed in the ground, and uh, they may pray or they may irrigate, but they know that that seed needs water. The expectation is that a healthy seed and healthy fertile soil with a proper amount of water is going to grow. That's the way that it's supposed to work, and we're glad when it does. Have I lost anyone so far? Kids, are you with me? Okay. You might need to explain this to your parents because it's been a long time since they were in third grade with a styrofoam cup and planted a little bean seed in their classroom and watched it grow. So they're not as familiar with this as you are. So help them out. All right. Paul illustrates this very simply, and he asks the question, can the person who plants the seed cause the seed to grow? And the answer is no. Can the person who waters the seed cause the seed to grow? And the answer is no. 
Even today, with all of our technology and all of the, all of the things that we have, we still have not figured out how to actually make the seed grow. And we've got amazing things that we do right now. I mean, I, my dad just retired from John Deere recently, like 40 years working at John Deere. And farming has changed a little bit, uh, a lot actually, in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, sometime go to Moline and walk around the headquarters there. They've got on display all the latest, greatest planters and combines and all the things. Like, did, did you know that the planters back in the old days, they kind of dumped the seed in and they went down the row and it kind of planted one every so often. Now it's all computerized and it's actually counting every seed. It's spacing its location according to GPS. It measures its yield after the harvest. They can calculate all these things. Even the tractors, some of the tractors today don't even require a farmer. They type in the GPS coordinates, and it goes and it plows the field on its own. Whoa, that's right. Wow. And at Iowa State University, they've got all kinds of horticulturists. You can go there and be a horticulturist major, uh, which I would not want to have to say that very often. I'm a horticulturist major. Uh, just because it's a hard word to say, I'd rather be like banned. <laughs> P.E. But they've got horticulturists. All the, all the things that they have and all the things that, that uh, the, the wizards who used to work at John Deere did, they can't make a seed grow. To this day, cannot make a seed grow. If you could figure out how to make a seed grow, you'd be a very rich man. Who makes the seeds grow? God makes the seed grow. And spiritually speaking, who makes the seed of salvation grow. And the answer to that is not Paul and not Apollos. And you know what? Mary Magdalene couldn't do it. And Mary, the mother of Jesus couldn't do it. And Peter couldn't do it. And, and, and Billy Graham can't do it. And George Whitfield couldn't do it. And Charles Spurgeon couldn't do it. And Martin Luther couldn't do it. And right now, as I stand here, I can't do it. I cannot. In spite of how much volume I use and wave my arms or try to be convincing to you, I cannot cause growth in your life or my own. I can't do it. Why? Because I'm a man. I am, and that's all that I am. I am merely a man. I got nothing. And neither do you. But God can make it grow. And God does make it grow. So Apollos watered, Paul planted, but God is the one who stepped in and actually produced the life and caused the growth. And we saw that in chapter 2, that these things come by the Spirit, not by the wisdom of man, but by the Spirit who enables us to understand spiritual truth and produces the life within us. The whole thing is about God. Therefore, who should get the glory for it. And who should be a big deal? And who should be put on pedestals? People who can't do it or the one who can't? So therefore, from the perspective of redemption in the big picture, pastors and evangelists and authors and teachers and parents and, and uh, 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 elders and deacons and all the rest, in the big picture, insignificant. Why? Because they can't, they've never caused anything to grow. You realize of the millions of people that have responded to the gospel, 
under the teaching of a Louis Palau or a Billy Graham or a Rick Warren or put your own little favorite person in the blank, whoever it is, no, not one person has ever responded because of them. Only through them, but because of God, who is the one who causes the growth. Therefore, who should get the praise for it? Are you all with me? You see what he's saying? Insignificant in comparison to God and Christ and what they do, insignificant. Now, you might say, well, doesn't that really undermine church authority? I mean, why should we even be sitting here listening to you right now? Let's go. Let's get out of here. It doesn't undermine church authority. The Bible has a lot to say about the role of elders and teachers and all of that. What it does destroy is Christian celebrity. Listen, it destroys Christian celebrity. That inclination that we have to want to put people on pedestals. That is what he is talking about. And I wonder, what would Paul have to say if he was to walk into many modern American churches where pastors are blatantly in the congregation promoting themselves? What would he say? What would he say about the way that we, and I am all too guilty of this myself, the way that we fawn over Christian celebrities of our day. And we get in their airspace and we think we're breathing their air. And we get them to, you know, uh, sign our Bibles or something. What would he think about the monuments that are built to men? Merely servants God chooses to use in the final analysis, insignificant. They're servants, and you don't build monuments to servants, and you don't put servants on pedestals. And I spent some time thinking about why do we want to do this? Why? I mean, it it was clear in the church at Corinth that they had this inclination to want to put people on pedestals. And clearly in our day, it's totally true where we want to put people on pedestals and to think more of them than we ought. Why do we do this? And it seems to me that the reason that we do this is that in some way we feel a connection with them. We feel that we can uh, relate to them. And secretly, we want to be like them. And so we put them on a pedestal. That's what happens in the culture around us. Obviously, there are celebrities uh, in in the culture around us. How do they become celebrities? I mean, they are just people like us. How do they suddenly become hot? Well, it's because people idolize them, and I think in some way feel that they can relate to them. They... And they feel a connection with them, and they secretly want to be like them. And they get, they, then they find themselves being a somebody. Well, what happens in the culture with these people? It's not very long, uh, in most cases, before they fall. And they do something that is very disappointing. And we realize when they do it that, oh, look, by the way, they're people just like us. They are all too human. This is a big problem, though, when that person on the pedestal is a Christian leader in our life. When they fall, what happens in the hearts of the people that put them on the pedestal is often that their faith is shattered 
Because now the person that they thought was all that clearly is not. And the hypocrisy of what they taught or what they said or what they called you to is there for everyone to see. And it is disappointing. Very disappointing. We run into people oftentimes who have walked away from the faith because when they were a teenager, they're a youth pastor, or when they were in church ministry, they're a pastor, or in their home, their mom and dad used to say this was the case, but then their parents walked away or had some horrible thing happen. And the result of that is that we run into people a lot who remain at least skeptical, if not blatantly anti-Christianity, because their faith was built or resting on a person who they did not think was flawed, but in the end shows that they are. And this produces great sorrow. And it seems to me that the real problem with this is that we fail to realize something about Jesus. Jesus was and is to this day 100% human. Think about think of that for a moment. He is as human as we are human. And what that means is, is that we can relate to him. That thing that we want in a hero and that we have in the idols of this culture, we totally have in him because he is 100% like us. We can relate to him. And that means also that he can relate to us. So that we relate to his poverty and we relate to his sorrow and we relate to his suffering and we relate to betrayal in relationships and we relate uh, to pain and suffering that he had in his life. He relates to the poverty that we experience and he relates to the sorrows that we experience and he relates to the betrayals that we experience in our life and he relates to the sorrow and the pain and the suffering that we live with in this world. Only there is one massive difference between Christ and the others that we put on pedestals. And here it is. Christ will never disappoint. He is never going to fall off the pedestal. He is never going to be anything less than what we hope and believe him to be. The glorious, beautiful, wonderful son of God and savior of the world. So as we put him on a pedestal, there is no fear that he is going to, in the end, prove to be a hypocrite. Or that our faith is going to be shattered by being disappointed in him. Unlike everybody else that we might put on a pedestal, who most certainly will disappoint us. And that is true for whoever you think is all that. And we always have people in the church that have somebody that they think is all that. And they bring books to us. And, hey, have you read this guy? You need to listen to his tapes. And, oh, this is, they've really got it going on. And over the years, this changes. Somebody becomes sort of popular and hot. And everyone, oh, well, this is the guy. And then, like, two years later, when his book sales go down and somebody else's goes, oh, no, this is the guy. Oh, he's so wonderful and all that. And I said uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I said to you, you know, the person that you think is all that, you think is all that because you don't know him well enough. If you were to get to know the person that you think is all that, you would find out that he or she is not. Our heroes are much prettier from a distance. But Christ, oh Christ, 
He will never disappoint us. He will never fail. He's never going to morally compromise. You're never going to find him to be actually selfish. He is never going to disappoint in the way that he treats us. We will never get close to him and discover that he isn't what we hoped he would be. And if you think otherwise, you don't know him well enough. And to me, this is the great irony. We put Christians too high because we don't know them well enough. And we put Christ too low because we don't know them well enough. Which is the second sentence in this sermon that I think is memorable. Which means I'm going to say it again. (laughs) We put Christians too high because we don't know them well enough. We put Christ too low because we don't know him well enough. In other words, down with them and up with him. Get him on the pedestal. And this is what Paul is aiming at here. He wants us to recognize where our, where our hopes and where our faith needs to rest. And now I told you we're going to try to get to verse 11. He changes the illustration here from agriculture to building. He says in verse uh, 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Key verse now, verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So from fields uh, to building and foundations, Paul makes the point. That there is a foundation to our faith, and there is a foundation to the church. And it is not Paul, and it is not Apollos, and it is not Peter, or anyone else. It is Christ. He is the foundation. It's a pretty good illustration, I think. We have builders in our church. If you're a builder, correct me if I'm wrong, but I am pretty sure that the first thing that you build in a building is the foundation. I've never seen a construction project that put the roof up first. You need a foundation. And if the foundation is not a good foundation, this is a serious problem, right? I remember there was a house in my old subdivision that uh, the people moved in and they find out that it has a bad foundation. And so they go to the builder to try to get it fixed. And the builder's like, you know, forget you. And, and uh, so they, they begin to protest. And they're putting signs around their house. And there's lemons in all the windows, you know. And they're, they're like going to war with this, with this builder. Well, finally, the builder sort of relents, comes in, fixes the foundation. Then the lemons went away and everybody's happy. Because you got to have a good foundation. If you move into a house and you find out that, oh, look, we have a leaky foundation. This is a problem. If you find out that you have a cracked foundation, this is a problem. If you find out that you have an uneven foundation, this is a problem. If you find out that you have a shaky foundation, that's a big problem. These foundations turn out to be not foundations at all. If they leak, if they move, if they shake, if they crack, that's not a foundation. That's not something you can build anything on. And what Paul is trying to help us realize that as we look at the architecture of our faith and the superstructure of what we are believing and hoping and and trusting in regarding our future, that there is no foundation other than Christ. And that when we build on a foundation of somebody in my life 
or my parent, or my coach, or my pastor, or my church, or some experience that I had in my life, that I'm going to find out that this is not a foundation that I can, that's going to support me. Because what happens when your faith is built on your parents' faith, or your faith is built on your mentor's faith, or your faith is built on your pastor's faith, that when life happens, those foundations crack and move and shake, and they are uneven. And when trouble comes, oftentimes the whole structure comes down. Because people have put their faith on a, on a, on a, on a bad foundation. And what this leads to is what we hear a lot. There's a lot of used to people. You know what a used to person is? Here's how it goes. This is what we hear. Oh yeah, Christianity, uh, church, church and all that. Yeah, we, we used to do that. Or somebody says, yeah, I, I grew up in a Christian home and I, uh, I used to be into that kind of thing. Or my, uh, my dad, oh boy, my dad, boy, he used to. My husband, yeah, I remember when we were dating, he used to. My son, bless his heart, but he used to. There are a lot of used to people. And I have found in this community there are a lot of used to people. But then life happens. And some trouble comes, or there is some disappointment that comes. And the kind of foundation that they have put their faith on is revealed either to be unshakable, uncrackable, immovable, or movable, shakable, and crackable. And the kind of faith that stands is a kind of faith that rests on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation that will never disappoint us. You'll never be a used to person if you build it on the person of Christ. When I say Jesus is the foundation of our faith, this is what I mean. It means that I am trusting in the person of Christ as son of God and savior of the world. That I am resting on, my hope is in, the work that he did in coming to this world as son of God and son of man. In his work on the cross as substitute and savior. In his triumph over death in the resurrection from the grave. And in his return as Lord and King. That's the foundation. And when I build upon the person and the work of Christ, since he is unchangeable, he is a foundation that will never decay. And since he is Unmovable, he is a foundation that will never shake. And since he is truth, he is a foundation that will never crack. And since he is love, he is a foundation that is never uneven. And since he is Lord, he is a foundation that is never overwhelmed when the floods of life come. Not going to happen. He is a firm and sure foundation. And Paul's like, why, when we have an unmovable, uncrackable, unshakable foundation, would we choose to rest our faith in somebody, a mere servant? Why would we do that when we have such a great foundation in Christ? 
So Paul is begging us not to make too big a deal about anybody. But the church can never make too big a deal of its Savior. Never. Although I th- I'd rather like us to be a church who tries. Wouldn't that be great to be part of a church that's trying to make too big a deal of Christ? Like, how could you ever do that? But let's try. Let's try. And I just would like to ask this question for our church. Who's a big deal around here? Who's a big deal? And to ask you the question, who's a big deal right here for you? When you get right down into the core of where you're kind of hoping and resting, who's the big deal there? And I wonder today, I wonder if you might not be one of those used to people. And maybe you've come today, you maybe have been coming, you're skeptical, but something draws you to faith, you grew up with it, you had some disappointment, whatever it is, parents, teachers, whatever, you're a skeptic of it because you've seen hypocrisy, but something in you longs for more than anything this world has to offer. I wonder if God might not use this message today for any of, and I say this with tenderness, with, for any used to person to possibly explain why you have struggled the way that you have and why you have been skeptical the way that you have and might not create a desire to turn from sin that has that hollows us out and to maybe for the first time build a faith not on some person other than the person of Christ and to begin to put something together that will endure and if that is you today my dear friend can i just encourage you to put your faith in Christ, to put your hope in him, to believe that he is actually son of God and savior of the world. And I believe that if you will open your heart to that, and if you will believe that Christ will begin to do something in your life that heretofore you have not experienced, because now for the first time, your faith is resting in him. Would you consider that? Would you consider that? If you need any help processing that, we would love to help you here at our church. And you could come to the front here at the end of our service. We'll have people to pray and talk with you. We would love to see that happen. I'd love to see used to people become like doing it people. (laughs) Trying it again. That would be great. Christians, Bethel Church members. Do you get the point? How should we view people that are handling God's word, teaching us, leading us, pastoring us, small group leading us, mentoring us? How should we view people that uh, write books and, and speak on the radio and bless us in that way? How should we view those people? Merely servants through whom we have believed. And as we do that as a congregation and we put people in their proper place, we are free to put Christ where he ought to be. And that is, he's the big deal. He is the big deal. And nobody else is even close. Amen? Amen.